we are here with Donna Marie Todd today. Um, she's here, she's actually the president of the Asheville Storytelling Circle um, and the singer of stories. How mm. did you get the singer of stories name? Ah, oh, that moniker was given to me by my son, Tori Todd, who is Mr. Science. He's a neuroscientist. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and um, I sing during most of my stories okay. and often bookend my stories with song, and I have a very lyrical speaking voice, so he thought the singer of stories would be a good moniker for me. Like that. Seems like a good thing when he was eight, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I know that my mom can't sing, so like the your story, your voice, and I'm sure that you gave like the most intricate bedtime stories ever. I'm so jealous <laughs> of him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of spoiled. Yeah. <laughs> so we were also wondering if you could tell us a little bit about kind of the origins of oral storytelling, um, or how it's been used to pass knowledge along. Oh, absolutely. Stories are our absolute most ancient way of communicating. We have been using stories to teach one another since we were gathered around peat fires and caves. It's been that long. And the reason that story is so powerful in terms of education is that it doesn't teach you facts. It teaches mm -hmm. situations. Now, you can teach facts around story, but story teaches you situations better than almost anything. So if you, for instance, let's say that there's a peat fire and you're a young cave boy and your mother's in the cave and she doesn't really have time to watch you because she's busy skinning the dinosaur for supper, right? Mm -hmm. And instead of telling you, mm -hmm. now that fire is hot, if you touch it, you'll burn it. If she tells him in that way, then if there's a chance that he might think, hmm, you know, maybe I'll touch it and see. But if she says to him, you see this scar on my hand right here? You know how I got that? I got that when I was about your age and I touched one of those peat fires and look what it did to me and it took it weeks and weeks and weeks to heal. Right. He will never touch that fire. Yeah. Because he will associate immediately in his mind the image of the large scar on his mother's hand mm -hmm. with the heat of fire. Oh, definitely. Right? Yeah. And even hearing you say that, I mean, I picture it in my brain. Right. Right so away. that's this. Okay, so you just tripped over it. That is the magic of storytelling and teaching. It creates pictures. So stories are really not words, okay? They have words. Mm -hmm. But stories are really pictures that I see that I tell you about. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And so that's why the image of the mother's hand is so powerful. You immediately saw it in your right. own mind. Yeah. So there's... um. There's a neuroscientist at the University of California uh, at Berkeley named Yuri Hassan, and he did this, just kind of stumbled over this really fascinating piece of how story works. He was using functional MRIs to investigate um, actually senility. Which is, hmm. There's a lot of interesting neuroscience that has come out of the research of Alzheimer's and other kinds of dementias right. because they're sense. so frightening. Yeah. And how they impact the, the neurological systems of our brain is fascinating. But what he discovered with these functional MRIs was that he had a group of patients and he had a storyteller. And he was wanting to watch the sensory areas of their brain. And he just so happened to have the storyteller hooked up to a sensory unit as well. Mm -hmm. And what he found was that when the storyteller was telling the story, the sensory regions of the listener's brains lit up at exactly the same time in exactly the same regions, like for scent, um, you know, taste, really? touch, yes, as the storyteller's brain. So that's an actual transference of imagery that's going mm, on. So, wow. yeah, there are words there, but it's really the images that are being exchanged yeah, from one mind, so cool. from one mind to the other. That's huge. Yeah. And it's that, like you said, like when uh, a mother is trying to 
it's giving that it's it's handing an experience over oh yes it is and, and by doing that you're really by the sense that i didn't know that that's insane that mm-hmm. your sensories mm-hmm. sensory organs light up at the same rate so right. it's, it's like you're there experiencing it that's, yeah, that's exactly that's right and you are and that's the power of story so that's why i encourage teachers to think about using sensory imagery in their classroom because it is an incredibly powerful way of letting kids discover for themselves yeah a piece of information and then as you mentioned um, Felicia with the mm-hmm. I'll, I can immediately see the scar right they'll remember it because it's buried in their sensory memory yeah which kind of goes around the whole front frontal lobe operating system of the brain you know the executive office piece it just kind of skirts around that and goes no nope, too important yeah Gonna file this picture here mm-hmm. yeah yeah I did read that it kind of um it works well for auditory, for visual, mm-hmm. and for kinesthetic learners because mm-hmm. it hits on all of those areas at once. Because mm-hmm. I'm okay. definitely an auditory learner. I know that like mm-hmm. if somebody, if I get an email and it's got the same information, if you tell it, tell it to me, I'm going to remember it so much better. I'm going to be able to recall. So human right. connection mm-hmm. is like that's how I remember things, yes. like hearing it from people. Right. Um, but so that's another great point, human connection. Storytelling has within it the power of human connection. Yeah. And as we become more remote learners, and um, we're virtual people in a way, you mm-hmm. know, we have social media, and we have our cell right. phones, even though they're great, I mean, we can record on them, we can keep up with our friends on them, but they separate us in yeah. a way. And story reconnects us. Yeah. The other piece is, too, that it's a cross-cultural experience. So if, um, if you're a Hispanic teller, and you're telling a story about a child growing up in um, Mexico, Mm -hmm. and you're telling it to a child um, in, say, West Virginia, who's never met a Hispanic person before, you can share that cultural experience Mm -hmm. and um, share it in a very powerful way to where that child will never forget. They will always remember that image of Hispanic life. And because it's a, probably a kinder, gentler image than what they might read um, about or get in rhetoric right. from an adult who's trying to teach them, you know, about mm-hmm. different cultures, yeah. um, there's a soft, warm place inside of all of us where story lands, and it creates its own safety because of that. Because story doesn't preach, right? and it doesn't really teach. It allows you to walk around inside the life of someone else and learn from their experience, and that's very powerful. Mm, definitely. Mm-hmm. So really, we can talk about things that are hard to talk about in everyday conversation mm. through storytelling. Somebody's in agreement. Yes, we can. Yeah, and you know, I kind of specialize in hard, right? You know? Yes, <laughs> yeah. I, I got that from your yeah. TEDx talk. Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah. So elaborate on that. Like, what what do you feel? You know, by having those difficult conversations, how do you open yourself up to being able to experience those different difficult conversations and topics through storytelling? So for me, um, we live in a death phobic culture. We live in an illness phobic culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, here we are all fleeing from the coronavirus. Right. Um, and that's somewhat ironic in the sense that 90 million people will starve to death this coming year mm-hmm. and we haven't seen anywhere near those numbers with corona but we're we're paranoid about things that we don't understand or things that we don't have to look in the face when it comes mm-hmm. toward us then all of a sudden it becomes real right. so um, not everything about life is happy and pleasant 
And um, I think we live in a time where uh, it would be really good to start having what I would perceive to be healthy conversations about things that are difficult to talk about, like climate catastrophe, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, War is hard to talk about. Mm -hmm. The death of a loved one is hard to talk about. Um, Let's take cancer, for instance. Um, 17 million people in the United States are living with cancer right now. We will lose about nine and a half million people this year to cancer. Wow. Yeah, that's a pretty big number. If you compare that to a coronavirus, that's a pretty big number. Yeah. Um, My sister has terminal cancer. Nobody's shouting about her, right? Mm -hmm. And yet, Yeah, yeah, and yet it's important to address the fact that hard things are also a part of life because in terms of things that impact us as people um, the difficult things are have a very powerful impact on our psyches they have an impact on how we interrelate to other people they have an impact on our job performance they have an impact on when it comes to children for instance our ability to learn yeah however as soon as we acknowledge hey this difficult thing happened. Like I just said to you, my sister has cancer. And, and what was your response to I'm me? I'm sorry to hear I'm that. I'm sorry to hear that. And so see, in that moment, you and I just built a bond because I shared a dark truth with you and you said, I'm sorry. If we were to do that same thing with the children in our school systems, if we were to say to them, um, for our Hispanic children, um, has anyone in your family been impacted by ICE? Are you afraid of that? Mm-hmm. Um, Do you have anything you'd like to share about that? And you let that child share that, they've released that, right? They've released it, and now they have this connection with you of extreme safety. Mm -hmm. That, again, is the power of the story. Offering someone to share even the smallest piece of their story is so incredibly powerful. Yeah. It's life-changing. It really is. And then we can get on with the happy stuff of learning because you know, people say, oh, you know, um, you work with widows and you, know, you deal with cancer and you deal with death and all these really dark subjects. Yes, I do because they're a part of life. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you've heard my, some of my stories, I think, and they're not all like, oh, you know, ooh, you know the world mm-hmm. is coming to an end. Ooh, you know, they're not ghost stories. Yeah. I mean, I tell some great ghost stories, but it's not Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, you know, um, we should be able to say, ouch. Right. Emotionally, just as easily as if I were to smash my finger with a hammer, ouch, and you were to right. go, I'm sorry, you know, yeah, yeah. that it's, it's a necessary interaction, human interaction, and we're, we're kind of sanitizing ourselves. And you said mm. it's what, 9 million people will pass from cancer this year? Yeah. Every, I think everybody knows someone. Absolutely. Oh, every yeah. single person is known, you know, their, their friend's mom, their aunt, their uncle, you know. They've watched someone that they love decay from cancer. Yes, They've they experienced that. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. everyone has experienced that. It's something that touched home for so so many people. Mm-hmm. Right. But again, cancer is one of those untouchables. Yes. Mm-hmm. But but you see, that's part of the problem. Exactly. If, uh, that's what keeps us from really pursuing the kind of cancer research that we should be pursuing. Oh, definitely. It's, mm-hmm, it's what keeps us from being supportive in community to families that are dealing with cancer. So. If, if you were to, I do a lot of school residencies where I teach creative process through the lens of storytelling because it's such an accessible way of teaching creative writing and creative process. And you can apply creative process to anything in your life. I mean, it works whether you're doing science or math or right. um, linguistics. And the power of, of acknowledging 
tragedy is that it builds these bridges of trust and it creates atmospheres of safety yeah. within which then we're free to converse with one another, we're free to share. If we were able to talk about those kinds of things, then we could create different support systems within yeah. our schools, within our communities, within our offices than, than what we currently have. Yeah. The fact that we don't share information about death and cancer and strokes or another big one that nobody talks about. Yeah. Um, and I lost somebody I love to that. Um, because we don't talk about that, then we isolate people. And mm-hmm. we isolate them at their very weakest moment when they most need human connection yeah. is when we begin to build walls. So. Beautiful thing yes. about what y'all are doing with, with um, education and with taking these kinds of really fun science things into the schools is that they don't have a filter to where they say, that won't work, well, that won't work. And so they're wide open yeah. to what could work, right? Mm-hmm. They haven't had enough, like like us older folks, they haven't had enough of that won't work. They haven't heard no enough yeah. to where they shut down, right? And think, oh, there has to be a right answer. But again, if you were to use story, even in the approach of a scientific problem, mm-hmm. let's say that you were wanting to teach them about um, the attributes of water, and you were to talk about the amazing varieties of animals that live in the water um, by telling them the story of a whale and his friends. Okay? Yeah. You immediately established ooh, animals live in the water, so the water has to be pure enough for the animals to live in. Oh, I wonder if they can live in this or that or the other thing. Kids will automatically go there. Oh, um, I didn't realize there was that much water. Water's a really big deal. I mean, within the frame of a story, you can explain so many things that would take you three class sessions to line out yeah. and be immediately forgotten. Mm-hmm. But if it's told through the eyes of a story, and if maybe the whale encounters some sort of small crustacean that's having an issue living in the environment because the water quality has changed in this way, then how can you help the crustacean live? Yeah. At the end of the story, that's the question. Right. Then that's a whole different way of approaching the question. And here at High Tech, we actually have a program talking about, I think it's a program about sound. Mm, and we we're do. discussing echolocation. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, fun. you know, in what situation would a mama whale have to talk to her baby whale? And, and what do they have to communicate? And that puts it into perspective. Like, even in the animal community, something yes. that's so unrelated to you puts that into perspective to have that sh- situational understanding. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it definitely... They grasp it a lot better. <laughs> yes, they absolutely do. Than they would. Well, well that and, and the animal kingdom is much more sentient than we think it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They've actually proven that dolphins and whales um, have a pretty amazing language system. Mm. Little clicks and beeps. and right. I know yeah. dolphins are the only known animal mm-hmm. that have sounds mm-hmm. to communicate to someone specifically. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yes. I love that. Yeah. Wow. So they have like pet names, basically. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Felicia. <laughs> you, know, you have your own click. Yeah, I love <laughs> That's that. That's kind of a cool thing. You know, when, when, I, when I meet people and like you're in an airport, because I travel a lot, and you're in an airport and, and you know, this handsome businessman sits down next to you, you know, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer and work for the, you know, federal government and, you know, what do you do? Well, I'm a professional storyteller. You know, <laughs> 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 hear the laughter, like, and the rolling of the eyes and right. all that, you know, it's like, right. oh, I guess you deal with little kids and you go to the library and read books. Mm, nope, actually, I, you know, no, that's actually not what I do. Um, but the minute somebody recognizes that you're open to hearing story, they start telling you their story. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, by the by the end of that 15-minute or half an hour or 45-minute wait in the the airport gate, 
the lawyer's following me onto the plane, telling me about his story, <laughs> telling me about his grandparents, telling me about the stresses of his job, because we don't have an opportunity to tell our stories much anymore. Yeah. Because so hmm. we're lacking that human connection. Right. We're in such a fast-paced world right. that you can, you know, see somebody and completely judge them and their experience. Like exactly. you said, they scoff at you. Right. They, Only for the first five minutes. Right. <laughs> and and, and they, they don't appreciate the fact that, you know, you're a person with completely different experiences mm. and a completely different story than what I have. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And because I don't understand your story. Right. Until it's invalid. Until I understand it. Right, until you hear it. Exactly. So that's the other thing. Story removes judgment. Yeah. Mm. See, stories can't have rhetoric, they cannot have rhetorical judgment. That's, that's a story with rhetorical judgment and it leaves. It leaves the mind immediately. It's rejected by the mind as not story, not story. Because it is our oldest communication medium. Because we're actually hardwired the way Yuri Hassan found out in the fMRIs to receive and hear story to transmit it. Because we're that hardwired, we know the real story from the not real story. Um, as any teacher in the school system who's had a kid say that the dog ate their homework knows that, right? right. <laughs> so, you know, we recognize, oh, that's not a true story. But when we open ourselves up to the possibility of story and how it can be used, then the stories start flowing. We don't even have to be physically present with one another in order to have the impact of story. We just have to hear it. And then, bang, you know, we're, we're right there. We're right inside the story. Yeah. The more sensory imagery that teachers can use in their uh, educational experiences with their kids, the more they begin to plug into that ancient reception system, receiver system. It's like a, they're a transmitting tower. Like if, if, if we're talking cell phones, maybe, they're the transmitting tower and the kid's the cell phone. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. story enables the teacher to transmit directly into a very special place, like a voice memo that they can go back and play. Now, what did the story say again? And then the story will lead them back to whatever the teacher was trying to teach. Yeah. That's cool. I wanted to also see how you got involved in the storytelling community and what made you decide to pursue storytelling. Mm. So... Um, I started out uh, in vocal performance years ago. Um, I was kind of a vocal prodigy, and I ended up at a conservatory of music, and I got to train at a very high level with a metropolitan opera soprano and um, conductors and people from lots of European countries. And I found their stories actually more interesting than the music piece, which... I didn't recognize that at the time, but I did recognize, I don't think opera's for me. I just didn't, you know, yeah. I was, nah. But I learned a lot about how to use my voice, how to use my body, how to wear mm. really awesome costumes. Um, <laughs> and then I kind of moved from there into theater, and then I kind of tripped from theater into publishing, which was kind of an odd, you know, um, bump in the dark. And I published women's lifestyle magazines for about a decade. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. And I still, I write all my own material for the most part. I'm a original narrative artist, but as I began writing, um, I found that I, the more I wrote stories, the more I began to tell stories, and then I became a mother, and that really changed everything for me. Um, when my son was born, uh, of course, I read to him every night and um, did all of those things with language that you're supposed to do, but his favorite part of language was to sit with me and look me in the eyes instead of looking at a book and have me tell him a story about me. Mm -hmm. So 
and grandpa and grandma and our we had lots of pets we still have lots of pets and stories about the pets and he loved made up mm-hmm. stories about the pets and about as soon as he was able to speak then I would tell him a story and then he would create a story about the pet so we had this just amazing collection of, of stories about our animals and that was when I began to realize wow um, he learns through story mm-hmm. he's learning more from story than he is from preschool so for instance in preschool um, you know you learn your numbers and you learn your colors and you learn your ABCs and he mm-hmm. went to an excellent preschool yeah both the teachers had masters in early childhood ed and it was a fabulous preschool and it, they called me in one day and they said, well, you know, Tori's doing really great, uh, except he won't learn his ABCs. Now, he knows all the letters. I'm like, what do you mean he won't learn his ABCs? <laughs> they said, well, you know, he, he just refuses to recite them. So I went home to him that night and I said, now look, um, this is an essential skill. You know, you have to be able to say your ABCs. He didn't think so. Could we read a story? Could we tell a story? So he went into kindergarten, and they do those little assessments, you know, and they came, and they said, we think your, your son is highly gifted, but um, he won't learn his, you know, he can't recite his ABCs. So I was like, oh my gosh, you know, how can he be highly gifted and not be able to know his ABCs? I wonder what's wrong with this. And so we got all the way to the end of first grade, and he was reading at that point, but he didn't know his ABCs. And finally one day I said, you know, this ABC thing, like it's ridiculous. And he said, yes, it is. <laughs> so words are not made up like that. And I said, what? And he said, words and the stories are not made up. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, M, N, O, P. I was like, of course they're not. <laughs> Letters are part of words, which are part of stories, or part of, you know, so for his mind, mm-hmm. then and now, he has, you know, a bachelor's in... Um, neuroscience and cellular molecular biology so you know and he reads it like a 99th percentile but for him a b c d e f g is absolutely useless because it's not how words are shaped yeah right? so that's just it doesn't make sense there's no order to it right watch there's out there's no order right. <laughs> right. It's, it's illogical therefore you know, it doesn't matter that's really funny <laughs> thinking in story even at that young an age and um, mm-hmm. so he now he's in um, medicine and he uses story to communicate with patients yeah hmm. so that's a nasty looking cut on your hand there how did you get that and then when they tell him how they got the cut <clears throat> things like well you know I'd had too many drinks or whatever starts to come out. you know it's really it's fascinating how once you ask somebody to start telling their story, they will really unload their story. Yeah. Right. Whereas if you approach it, for instance, of, you know, do you think you drink too much or, you know, were right. you doing a dangerous activity or, you know, whatever, um, they're not going to tell you anything. Right. It's going right. to be a yes, no, shut down kind of answer. But if you open the pathway to story, no telling what you find out. So as to how I got involved in it, as I um, was working with my son, I realized, wow, story is really powerful. Right. And then I... I had a friend invite me to the National Storytelling Festival, and it had never occurred to me that you could like do that as a living, you know. Mm-hmm. And I went to the National Festival, and I saw all these storytellers, and I'm like, "That's what I'm doing." Um, wow, I, I could 
explore that as a career. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I can write and I can perform and I can use all my voices that I've worked so many years, you know, in vocal training to learn how to do. Yeah. And I can do something that is really unique and meaningful and important. And wow, I think I'll do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I love how, you know, your background in opera plays into that. I mean, mm. that's so cool. Mm. And publishing. There's not, it's, it's interesting when you look at it, there's really not a skill that storytelling can't utilize. Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated by science. I love science. So, you know, I love to um, do projects where you write science fiction stories. And the science has to be real and the fiction has to be real too. And the storytelling is what carries all of it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I know personally my favorite genre has always been like historical fiction. Yeah. Like getting that perspective of history through a story. Right. So that I can connect myself to... Mm-hmm. What that person is experiencing and their truth and, and their experience from a firsthand point of view. Mm-hmm. So, do you go to the storytelling mm-hmm. I do. festival I and, do. and continue yeah, to? How, yeah. how often is it? A, a well, the National event? Festival is once a year. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. The National Festival is uh, the first weekend in October every year in a little tiny town called Jonesboro, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then. Um, I edit a magazine about storytelling that has an international distribution, and that's kind of fun. So that you know lets me keep the old magazine skills up in play. Yeah. And um, I travel the country doing what I do. I use storytelling in retreat to help people uh, explore their stories of um, loss very often, their stories of connection. Um, storytelling really has no end point. It is a connecting point to everything else. One thing interesting that I kind of read about recently is there's, and I talked about this in the last podcast that we had too, but there's this kind of um, method of therapy where they're utilizing storytelling now and letting people kind of tell their stories. And they talk about how it allows people to kind of take a step back to make make sense of what they're experiencing. Because if you're just feeling things and you're right in the middle of something going on in your life, it's like, it's very overwhelming. It's hard to see where you're at. But if you step back and have to create a story, you can kind of create that, you know, okay, this is what led to what I'm dealing with now. And these are the endings I could possibly have. Mm -hmm. Yes. So you can use story to help people examine their trauma. That's definitely Mm -hmm. uh, the case. The Veterans Administration is using story-based um, recovery programs for PTSD across the country. And I'm very proud of them for doing that, yeah. for seeing the validity of it and then um, building a, a program around that. The other piece of story is um, that makes it so powerful in any kind of recovery is that once you own your story, then you have the chance to create, as you mentioned, your new story. Right. And... Um, again, for the teachers that might be listening, you know, to help children take their current story, I, I stink at math, and build a whole new story where they're actually pretty good at math, mm-hmm. and they use maybe story-based math problems to help themselves over that bridge of thinking they can't do it. Right. Um, as we build new stories for ourselves, we're actually hardwiring back into those sensory memory areas. The more we're able to visualize um, what that would look like, um, like let's say that um, that you want uh, a new approach in your classroom. You're tired of the way that you've um, been decorating it. You're tired of the, the energy of your room. You want to do something different. Instead of just going to the store and finding some posters or whatever to stick up on the wall or painting it a different color, to actually sit and visualize and tell yourself the story of, of 
what has happened in that classroom that you're wanting to let go of. So you, you actually let go of the, sto of the story that you've had. And then to visualize, and what new story would I like to see? What new impact would I like my classroom to have on the kids and to have on me? And then as you begin to see that, and you see it in, in full sensory awareness, what kind of aromas would I like? Um, would I like plants? Would I like, what kind of colors am I looking for? What kind of imagery, messages, all that sort of thing? Then when you actually decide you're going to redecorate your classroom, things appear that are perfect. Yeah. Like, oh, that plant mm -hmm. is perfect. Right. All that poster is perfect for what I want to do. You know, it's... If you tell a story, what do you want somebody to take? Well, first off, I want people to feel safe. Um, it's my personal opinion that most of us don't feel safe most of the time. Yeah. So I want people to feel safe in sitting inside my stories. So the first thing I do in every story I tell is create a realm of safety where they, they know I'm going to ask them to go deep, but I'm going to pull them back out. I'm not going to ask them to stay there. And I'm going to create safety while we walk around inside the life of this other person. So for them to know that they're safe is the first thing. For them to know that we have very similar experiences and then that we also have very different experiences of things mm -hmm. creates a larger understanding within ourselves of who we are in our place in the world and who else is in the world with us and the fact that we're all in there together and we're safe. Yeah. Right? Um, it's a, a unifying, community-building kind of experience. So at the end of the story, how I want people to feel is the most important thing to me. And I want them to feel safe and I want them to feel aware and I want them to feel empowered. Mm -hmm. To never have to hide anything about their story again to be bold about sharing their own story with other people and also in listening, to open the door to listen to someone else's story is one of the biggest gifts we can ever give another person, um, heart to heart, mind to mind. Um, and then I want them to really feel like, hey, you know, and this is what happens when I, when I finish a performance, people will come up to me and they'll say, you know, my grandmother did that exact same thing. But now she, you know, um, smoked cigarettes or she, uh, you know, didn't like turnips or whatever. They're, they're immediately, not only are they holding my story, but then they have their parallel story that mm -hmm. they're wanting to offer to me so that, you know, we suddenly have this community that we, we didn't have before. And I guess one of my final things to say about it would be that once you have heard someone else's story, they are no longer the other. Yeah. Mm. They are you, and you are them, and you are together human in the knowing of the story. Um, I'll tell you a, a petite story um, that kind of goes back to your question about um, why I storytell mm -hmm. and my... Um, belief that it has the power that it has. So um, my father spent the last two years of his life in a drab brick nursing home inside a little tiny room painted industrial green. And he was the Reverend Dr. Ross Malcolm Evans. He was born in 1920 um, to a Welsh steelworker. 
and he grew up in the Great Depression on a little sustenance farm in Glendale, West Virginia, where he grew most of the things they ate with his family. He grew the collards, and he grew the green beans, and he even grew the corn that they ground into their cornbread. And Glendale's only claim to fame was that it sat outside the walls of the West Virginia penitentiary. And my father was quite a singer, and his high school chorus would go and sing at the penitentiary about every other Sunday. And one Sunday, after Daddy had sung solo at the church, this man came up and he introduced himself as Joe. And my father said, well, hi, Joe, I'm Ross. And Joe said, well, Ross, um, I don't have any other friends or family. Will you be a witness for me? And now my dad, thinking that Joe was talking about a baptism, you know, witnessing a baptism, said, sure, you know, he'd be happy to do that, only to find out that what he had agreed to witness was not a baptism, but a hanging. And my father said that watching that hanging when he was 17 years old was what called him to the ministry because he decided that rather than reach people um, after they got to the penitentiary, he thought maybe it would be a good idea to be the hands of love to people before they got there. So my daddy married my mother during World War II when there was no sugar for the cake and no lace for the dress. And he was known for preaching very powerful sermons about real life and for being the hands of God in his community. And he was still at age 89 a very handsome man. And he had a head full of wavy white hair and jet black eyes and his nose and his mouth looked a lot like mine. And I would go to visit him in that nursing home I was telling you about pretty much every day with my senile 17-year-old Jack Russell Terrier named Mr. Sniffy. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Sniffy was very, very bad about biting. <laughs> in fact, he was so bad about biting that we actually called him our Jack Russell Terror. That's how <laughs> bad he was about biting. <laughs> But Mr. Sniffy loved Daddy, and Daddy loved Mr. Sniffy, and so Daddy would order extra bacon on his breakfast tray every day so that he could share it with the dog. <laughs> so the minute we would get to the nursing home, Sniffy would run into Daddy's room, and he would leap into the recliner that Daddy had. And this was just not any recliner. This was one of those really fancy recliners that had a remote control, you know? And it would lift you from a seated position into a standing position, and if you didn't push stop in time, it would toss you on the floor. That's how Daddy broke his hip. So one day I arrived at the nursing home with Sniffy at exactly the same time as the CNA carrying his breakfast tray. And on the tray were the usual suspects. There was this little wad of reconstituted pale yellow scrambled eggs. And then there were some really sorry looking grits and a cup of coffee that was so weak you could see all the way to the bottom of it and 10 pieces of bacon for Daddy and Mr. Sniffy. <laughs> So Sniffy ran and jumped up in Daddy's lap, just like he always did. And Daddy wrapped his arms around that little dog, and he laid his head down on his, and he began to weep. And the CNA just shook her head and put his tray down and left. She was a very depressed woman with a very depressing job. But I went over to my dad, and I said, Daddy, what's wrong? Are you in pain? And he shook his head no, like a little kid. And then he raised his shaking arms in the air. He had Parkinson's, and he said, I blew it, honey. And I said, oh, Daddy, blew what? And he said, I blew it with you. 
and I knew my dad's time was close and I, I didn't want him to die thinking he'd been a failure and that he hadn't meant anything to me. So I said, Daddy, you know, you've had an amazing life. You, you were the first college-educated person in your family. You went on to get a master's and a doctorate. You, you were so amazing in the church. Remember when you talked that old coal baron out of that reclaimed strip mine so you could build a church? And remember how you talked his buddy into building it for free? when you mentioned to him that you'd seen him at the hotel with that beautiful young girl that just had to be his daughter. And Daddy, remember how involved you were in the civil rights movement? R remember how, how you preached those powerful sermons about segregation being a sin? And I can still see you. I, I can see you walking down Main Street, arm in arm with the black clergy, singing, we shall overcome, at the top of your lungs. And remember, Daddy, how our house was always the battered women's shelter and the food pantry and the counseling center? And then I knelt down in front of him and I said, Daddy, you have lived an amazing life. How can you say you blew it? And he took his trembling hands and held his face, took my face in his hands, and he said, because of you, honey, because of you, I pushed you so hard to be a singer. I pushed you, honey, until you broke. Remember? I didn't know. I didn't know you were going to do this, this, this thing that you do, this this amazing thing that you do. And I said, storytelling? Are you talking about storytelling, Daddy? And he said, yes, honey. What you do touches people and they remember who they are. And of course now, <laughs> I was the one who was crying. But to Daddy's credit, I think sometimes it does take us a while to figure out who we are and what we're supposed to do in this life. And what I know about the story that keeps me doing it is that when I use story, I am able to remind people of the internal truth they already know help them identify the courage that they have inside of them and remind them that their dreams are powerful. And that's why I'm a storyteller. Donna, you do something that's so amazing and so innately human. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I thank you. You're thank welcome. you for sharing thank you your, so much. <laughs> your thank story you. with us. Thank you for sharing it with the people that need it most, even though that they, they might not know they need it. Yes. Right. Thank you. Thank You're you for welcome. sharing your story with Thank me. you for having me here today. It's been a lot of fun. Before we end, real quick, how can listeners find you? And also, oh. do you have anything coming up? Oh, I travel all the time. Um, <laughs> I have things coming up all the time. We're going to be at the um, Asheville Airport on Friday for World Storytelling Day. Okay. Um, and... Um, most of the events that I do are sponsored events, so they're not really open to the public. People pay me to come in and do my, my storytelling, my retreat work, my educational work. 
Um, they can find out more about me on my website, which is donnamarietodd.com. We'll make sure to link to that in the yes. podcast notes. And then um, I'm also on YouTube, so if they go to Donna Marie Todd or Donna Marie Todd on YouTube, they can find me there too. And um, if people are interested in receiving my stories, they can sign up for my um, blog on my website, and I send them a new story about every other week, and it's there in written form, and I also record it so they can listen to stories um, like it's a podcast. Awesome. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, and it looks like you're also president of the Asheville Storytelling Circle, and I it am. looks like the website for that is AshevilleStoryCircle.org. Right. So everyone can find her there as well. Um, and again, thank you so much. This thank has you been amazing. For me. It was great. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>